Hello, and welcome to another short box from Warhammer 40k's Grim History from the Beyond. I'm Zekthar, and this week we'll be talking about the end of the founding of the Empire, which is called the Great Scour. Now last week we discussed how Rabute Gilliman saved the Empire, or some would say destroyed it. I can definitely say he changed it. Perhaps he had more plans, and his original plans were simply a stopper for the decline of the Empire which he would have changed if he was around longer. None can say, though, because this week we will be discussing the Battle of Thessila, where our good chum, the King of the Smurfs, met his end. Or does he? Hmm? Well, our story starts after the second founding and the Iron Cage. Gilman had been the High Lord of Terra for 200 years, since the Big E's ascension, and things were starting to smooth out. I had almost finished pushing back the traitors into the Eye of Terror, and everyone had fallen in line with the second founding. Needless to say, Gilliman was feeling pretty good about himself. Yet there was a problem that itched in the new Emperor's crawl, and that would be the Emperor's children, Fulgrim's boys. While the rest of the traitor legions had been pushed back to the Eye, Fulgrim's chapter continued to raid and pillage the Empire's planets outside the warp's vacuum, leaving terror and blood in his wake. Now, to give you a little background on the Phoenician, things had gone kooky for him since the heresy. Let me explain. He'd grown past the aspect of mortality and had ascended, or descended, depending on how you look at it, into a demon prince of Slanesh. Well, this in and itself is an interesting aspect of the Horus heresy, but I cannot do it justice in such few words. So tune in next week for a bonus box of The Fall of Fulgrim. <clears throat> Anywho... The new demon prince of Slanesh, Fulgrim, was causing quite a stir in the farther reaches of the galaxy, and Rabute knew that he had to deal with his upstart brother. Raising the fleets of the Ultramarines, as well as six of its successor chapters from the second founding, he went on the hunt to put an end to his twisted brother. After some time, Gilliman's goal seemed to be close at hand when his fleet tracked his brother to the world of Zolko, where they clashed with Fulgrim, but the traitor escaped and Gilliman relentlessly pursued him to Thessela, and prepared himself to end his brother's life. Now remember, say what you will about Gilman, but family was important to the man. As opposed to many of his brothers, he grew up with a loving mother and father, brothers and sisters. Now while they were not genetically related, and he did grow significantly faster than his siblings, he still had a deep concept of family. I say this to give you a background that while Gilman knew that for the Imperium to succeed, many of his brothers would have to be slain. Yet this was the first that he truly had to deal with himself. One must remember that even though they grew up in different planets, the two were brothers, and the need to end his brother's life was truly disheartening to the Lord Macrog. Yet, duty before all else, and Rabute chased his fallen brother to the backward system of Thessala. However, once they neared Thessala, Fulgrim showed his escape had been merely a ruse, as the Emperor's children's fleet suddenly ambushed the Loyalists, who found themselves trapped and outnumbered. During the fierce battle that followed, Fulgrim's flagship, the Pride of the Emperor, healed over Gulliman's flagship, the Gauntlet of Power, and the Ultramarine's battle barge responded with a barrage that created an opening in the Pride's void shields. Seeing a small opportunity to save his fleet, Gilliman led 100 Ultramarines and strike teams from the successor chapters in a desperate teleportation attack against the Pride of the Emperor. Aboard the Pride, Gilman went to confront his brother with a force composed of 50 Ultramarines from the First Company, led by Captain Andros, and 50 from the Second Company, led by Captain Thiel. 
while the successor chapters went to cripple the pride of the emperor. Gilman and his forces were left undisturbed while they traveled through the eerily quiet, triumphal way, and eventually reached the entrance to the Helipolis, where the Primarch knew Fulgrim would be waiting for him. During this time, the chapter master Ludon and Corvo of the second founding's voxed Gilman and told him of the resistance their forces were facing from the emperor's children, as they sought to disable the pride of the emperor. After hearing this, Gilman told his forces to wait outside the Helipolis, while he confronted Fulgrim by himself. He stated that he would talk to Fulgrim, and hopefully distract his brother long enough for the successor chapters to cripple the pride of the emperor. This would greatly aid their outnumbered fleet. Now, to put this bluntly, this was a foolish act. Perhaps Gilman thought he could bring his brother back and bring yet another wayward family member into the fold. Another thought was that he figured that he could just stomp his younger brother into the dust whenever he deemed, and he would give him one last chance to repent. The last thought is incredibly prideful, yet it sounds like Gilman. Remember, at this point, he is in all aspects the Emperor of Man, other than actually being the Big E. In this stage of history, he was the most powerful person in the Empire, and it wouldn't surprise me if this had gotten to the avenging son's head. Yet, it still could have been option A, and he was willing to try to bring his brother back into the fold. Who knows exactly what Gilliman thought of his brother before the heresy, yet from what I've read, he was a decent man. He would go drinking with his savage brother, Lehman Russ. He would talk philosophy with Magnus, as well as help his largest brother, Vulcan, with the newest reforms and tax reductions for those less fortunate. Yet while he did all of this to further the bond of family that was taught to him by his foster family, I still think Gilliman thought of himself better than his brothers. Well, other than three. Of all of his brothers, he truly thought two were superior to him. And one, he thought, of just simply as a true friend and equal. The only two he truly thought superior, though, were Horace and L. Johnson. Horace he was quite friendly with, and knew that his older brother was greater in every aspect to him, other than one thing, apparently. Loyalty. I think this is why when Horace led his treachery against the Emperor, Gilliman felt the blow not just to the Empire, but to himself. The second being Lionel Johnson was simpler, and something Gilliman could get a grip around. The Lion was the greatest tactician Gilliman had ever known, not to mention one of the greatest warriors he'd ever met. Yet the concept of ruling, Robute thought he had the upper hand on. But what frustrated the Ultramarine commander to no end was the fact that L. Johnson kept to himself, and he was so distant, he just simply didn't know enough about the man. The third brother would be that of the noble Sanguinius. The angel was one of his true friends, and when his other brother, Horus, killed him, it struck a blow to the leader of the Ultramarines. I leave Sanguinius for last because of all Verbute Gilman's brothers, Fulgrim was probably most like his fallen brother. Fulgrim wanted to be better than his brother, the angel. And when the metal met the meat, he wanted to be more. I'm sure there were many nights when Robute and Fulgrim discussed their work over a glass of red wine. Robute asking how the Great Crusade was going for Fulgrim, and Fulgrim chuckling as he took a sip, giving grand tales, and then subtly asking what Sanguinius was up to. And that was the crux. Robute knew it. Fulgrim knew it. Fulgrim wanted to be, well, wanted. And not just wanted. He wished to be better than the angel. He wanted his brothers to think on him lovingly. He wanted to be loved most by all. While I mentioned Sanguinius was loved by his brothers, I really and truly mean by all of his brothers. They all had a deep friendship and brotherly love towards the man. And Fulgrim wanted that. Yet 
Fulgrim never figured out the one thing that made the angel so loved. He was his own man, but a chameleon as well. Did the angel truly enjoy carousing, brawling, and singing with the wolf? No. Did the angel truly enjoy his time in the forge, learning the ancient nocturne waves of the smithy from Vulcan? No. Didn't Sanguinius enjoy talking tactics of war and how to run an empire with Robute Gilman? No. Did he enjoy any of these acts? No. But he did learn from them. And more importantly, these were things that his brothers enjoyed. So he learned to enjoy them as well. It wasn't the fact that Sanguinius was learning from his brothers that made him loved, even though he was. It was the fact that he was enjoying his brother's company and doing what they loved to do. Fulgrim never understood this concept. And it led to his destruction. Fulgrim's true joy wasn't tactics, battle, not even culture or song. Fulgrim's joy was, well, Fulgrim. And when he met and talked with Sanguinius, he could never understand why he was always felt better. Yet it was just so doggone simple. They simply talked about the legend of Fulgrim. <laughs> Yet, Fulgrim never did understand his main fault was his own hubris. He always used the angel as what he wanted to be, what he should be which led to the corrupting jealousy that broke him, with a little help of from she who thirsts, of course, and a demon blade. Gilliman knew this, well, maybe not to the extent of what drove his brother to insanity, yet he knew that all the Phoenician wanted was to be loved like the angel. Perhaps he could talk his brother back. In all honesty, I think Rabute Gilliman truly knew that he could never bring his brother back. Yet I think pride gave him the thought that he could deal with his brother, regardless of his princehood by Slaanesh. I also think that, like I said before, Rabute had a deep concept of family, and he had the hope that he could pull Fulgrim back from the brink. Regardless, Andros and Thiel, his captains, immediately protested against this and told Gilliman his pride was getting the better of him and that he was simply looking for an excuse to personally kill Fulgrim by himself in order to avenge the traitor's treachery against the Imperium. Though Gilliman's decision was final, he thought better of his pride and hope. Then he relented, telling his captains that if Fulgrim attacked and began to overpower him, he would call for their aid. The two captains agreed, and Gilliman entered the Helipolis alone, where he was soon confronted by Fulgrim, who tried to convince Gilliman to embrace the worship of the Chaos Gods like he had. It was at that moment that Gilliman knew despair. Fulgrim had become a hideous beast to the Avenging Sun. His lower half had become that of a snake, smooth-scaled and purple. His chest held two shoulder lines for all four of his arms, and the only thing that Robute truly recognized was the face of his brother, which no matter how much he talked, always carried a knowing sneer of false righteousness. Killiman couldn't help himself. Seeing the horrid reflection of what his brother once was, he attacked the two Primarchs clashed in sparks as the swords of Fulgrim clashed with Gilliman's sword of purity. But alas, it was soon obvious that Gilliman was no match for Fulgrim's warp-enhanced strength. Seeing he was about to be killed, Gilliman took five steps back and called for Andros and Thiel to his aid. But at their forces entering the Helipolis, Fulgrim called forth a horde of Emperor's children, who had been waiting nearby as well. As their sons fought around them, the two Primarchs clashed once again. The blows of Gilliman emitting sparks of hideous purple warp energy as Fulgrim blocked each blow with his own blades. Now the demon prince of Slanesh laughed at Gilliman's futile attempts to defeat him, but it wasn't long before Fulgrim tired of this game. As the demon prince blocked his brother's sword with two of his own, he struck with the third, which the avenging son blocked, yet he left 
his neck open, where Fulgrim slit his brother's throat with his poisoned sword. A shock Gilliman grasped at his neck, and in wide eyes and gurgling tone, he asked his brother how he is able to fatally wound him. Fulgrim replied his warp-infused eyes saw the scar that Cor Ferron's Athame blade had inflicted upon Gilliman during the Battle of Kulth. Gilman then collapsed, but was teleported back to safety aboard the Gauntlet of Power, along with Captain Thiel and the surviving Ultramarines of the First and Second Companies. Afterwards, the Emperor's children massacred Gilliman's fleet, and the Gauntlet of Power was amongst the few of the Loyalist ships that escaped Fulgrim's wrath. And what happened to Fulgrim is of little worth to note, simply because he doesn't take the advantage of killing the Regent of Terra, nor telling his traitor's brothers, or Abaddon, on what he did. If he had, who knows? He might have ended the war with humanity once and for all. What happened to Gilliman is far more interesting. Fatally poisoned by his one-time brother, Rubute was transported back to Macrog, in a stasis field, and remained entombed in the field for 10,000 years, frozen in time in the Shrine of Gilliman. It was there that the pilgrims from across the Imperium traveled to pay homage to the Avenging Sun. It was a miraculous temple of construction and typical to the attention to detail to which the Ultramarines applied themselves. Its proportions defied the human mind by the scope and grandeur in its design. The multicolored glass dome that formed the roof was the largest of its kind in any galaxy. His mortal remains were preserved from the ravages of time by means of stasis field that isolated the Primarch from the time stream of normal four-dimensioned space-time. Everything encompassed by the field was trapped in time and could neither change nor decay. There were some in these years, however, who claimed that Primarch's wounds did change. They said that Gilliman's body was slowly recovering and that his wounds showed mysterious signs of healing. Others denied the phenomena and pointed out the sheer scientific impossibility of change within the stasis field. Yet enough believed the stories to come and witness for themselves the miracle of the Primarch, generation after generation. Eventually, now mind you, the ecclesiarchy would say the time was right and humanity needed a savior. The emperor of mankind, on the other hand, would say it was just coincidence. But regardless, when the 13th Black Crusade seemed at its darkest for humanity, and it looked as if Abaddon would finally grasp victory, Gilliman awoke. Gilliman threw back the chaos of Abaddon, and he is still alive to this day. Yet what took place after his apparent death cost the Imperium so much. What might that be? Well, I'm glad you asked. Next week we will talk about it, titled The Ecclesiarchy. Now, if you enjoyed this, please like, subscribe, comment, and follow. And as always, until next time, this is Ekthar, signing off.